Well, we've actually just finished our series on identity officially, but I'm not ready quite to leave it there because uh, I want to kind of bookend the series. So if you remember, at the beginning of the series, we sort of started with the story of Saul and the identity crisis that he had. He was the man who would be king uh, and had no idea who he was until God stepped in and showed him supernaturally. And today I want to bookend this by talking at the other end of the series about a new identity, yes, but what about my limp? That's what I want to talk about today, what about my limp? You see, I hope that as we've gone through the series that you have been uh, challenged, that you've been encouraged, that God has spoken to you, that you've had new revelation. Perhaps you've had old revelation that's come back to life again as we've just talked about the amazing things that God has done, the gospel revisited. I hope that that's happened and uh, I hope that that's been an encouragement to you. But what about my limp? That's just been a question I've been asking throughout the series and that's what I want to talk about because, you see, we've seen that Christ's work has been done He's done a complete work. So that means that all the potential and the possibilities of heaven are now at my disposal. But if you're like me, and you look at yourself, you kind of think, well, there's quite a distance, actually, between all that God has done and all that he says of me, and all that potential and where I am right now. Um, Or maybe it's just me. But when I look at myself, I kind of tend to think there's an awful lot of work that God still needs to do, still needs to be done in me. Let me just talk about this for a few minutes, because this is kind of a, this isn't your usual kind of talk today. I just want to bring some testimony. Uh, This has got a prophetic feel about it. I feel like a prophetic urgency to communicate this with you to do so. So it's not going to be quite as tidy as normal. But I've just found throughout this series that I've I've noticed myself saying almost every week, I can't quite get my head around this. I don't know if you've noticed that. And, you know, when we do preaching class, we sort of pick up on mannerisms and habits, bad habits. And that's one of them. You shouldn't say that. You shouldn't say every week, I don't really understand what I'm teaching you. But I found myself doing that. I've just, this has just slightly blown my mind. And I feel like as I've gone through this series, and I've done seven weeks in a row on this series, I think, or six weeks, seven, six or seven weeks, it just felt like I've been through a continual spiritual workout. I hope you felt some of that. It's just exercised me. It's challenged me. Something's happened in me. And and these questions have been coming into my head as I've been going through. And I didn't want to finish the series, package it, move on neatly, without saying this. (laughs) This series has been hard work. So some of the questions I've been asking myself of, well, how can I make sure I do get my head around this? Because it, it kind of feels like there's some kind of responsibility. If what I've heard is true, then surely I've got to change. Surely that has impacted me for a purpose. It's not just because it's a nice idea or a, a good idea for a series. God is in this. And the other questions are things like, well, what about when I fail? You know, I am this new creation. I've got this wonderful identity in Christ now. But what about when I mess up? 
What about when I sin, when I let myself down and I, and I live in such a way that is contrary to who I know I am now? There's kind of an extra responsibility on us having heard this stuff. Because I know different. <laughs> I know different. I know that I'm a child of, of the Son of God. I, I know that I am a, a royal person now. So there's some things I, I don't want to be doing. So what about when I do? When I let myself down and I don't live up to what I know God has put in me? So these are the kind of questions I've been asking myself. And I think they're the right questions to ask. We talk about applying the message. (laughs) That's what I've been doing, applying the message. I think they're the right questions to ask. But as for the answers, well, I don't have them all yet. I don't have all the answers. Sorry about that. (laughs) But in thinking about this, as praying about it, as working through it, I've really been drawn to another story of kingship in the Old Testament, and it's one step on from Saul where we started, because we're going to talk about David. And it doesn't give us all the answers, but it's just kind of helped me to feel something of God's heart in this. And that's really when I try, I want to try and share that with you. I want to try and communicate God's heart to you today. So I want to talk about a man with a limp. I want to talk about the grandson of King Saul and the only heir to the throne. He was called Mephibosheth. Try and say that late at night. Mephibosheth. His name entirely appropriately means shame destroyer. Or image breaker. I just think that's amazing. You know, Steve and I uh, were just sharing a, a, a month ago, and and Steve was saying, "I feel like I need to speak on shame uh, on the shameless community." I said, "Do you know that's funny? I've got Mephibosheth, <laughs> the shame destroyer, or the image breaker." So I want to use this story and a particular event in his life which helps us to look at identity again, but from a different perspective. I want to look at what happens when identity goes wrong. What happens when we fail, and how God restores us. So that's what I want to look at. And this story is a great picture, especially following on from what Steve said. And I think it reveals something of God's heart to us. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I'm just going to work through the whole chapter. And uh, excuse me, I'm just going to speak from here because it's a bit dark up here and I found it hard to actually see my words properly in my Bible. But I promise you these are accurate words. You can follow them in the Bible to check me out. So I want to just draw out some lessons from this passage. So first of all, verse 1. David asked... Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? <laughs> For Jonathan's sake. It's just a wonderful verse. The background here is that Saul has just been defeated. He's been killed in a battle with David's army. Uh, and so had Jonathan, Saul's son. He was the heir to the throne. 
And during that process, and if you know the story of David, you'll know that increasingly Saul had become an enemy of David. He tried to kill him out of jealousy and knowing that he was God's chosen successor for the kingdom. But this is David's heart. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? It's amazing because actually the habit of kings, conquering kings of that time, the custom of the day was the king of the new dynasty would completely massacre anyone connected with the prior dynasty. That was accepted. That was the norm. You just kill everybody. End of problem. They're all dead. But David, instead of choosing to do that, he he chose not to seek revenge, but he says instead, well, what can I do to bless them? What can I do to show mercy to the family of Saul? And of course you know that the New Testament teaches us that we too were enemies of God. You know, we were deserving death because of our rebellion and sin, but God chose instead to die for us and to offer us salvation. And it's just so clear that David knew something of God's own kindness in his life. And that this was what was motivating him to offer kindness to his enemies, to Saul's family. And we can see this if you look over into chapter 7. It's just an amazing promise that God makes to David and to his family, promising of blessing, promising, as we know, of ultimately the Messiah coming through David's line. But it's David's response that I want to, I want to just draw to your attention because he pours out his heart as God promises all this blessing. This is David's heart. He says, who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you've brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign God, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man? O sovereign God? Is this how you normally deal with your enemies, God? Is this how you deal with sinners? You just bless them? You just offer amazing blessing and amazing promises? Is this normal? (laughs) You see, David had experienced the kindness of God. Something had impacted him. He knew that God didn't deal with him as he deserved. He deserved none of the blessing, none of the honor, none of the privilege. And it was this experience and the knowledge of God's kindness, as David describes it in verse 3, and this covenant that he'd made with his friend Jonathan that caused David to show such kindness. He says, to whom can I show kindness for Jonathan's sake? See, God doesn't deal with us as we deserve. Do you know that? You know, we don't deserve what God has given us. He's given us so much. He's done so much for us. He's even sent us his own son to die for our salvation. And we didn't deserve any of it. And as a dad myself, I struggle to understand how God could have done that. Any of you parents, (laughs) you know, for your enemies... When we were enemies, God sent his only son. When we were enemies, I wouldn't even do that for my friends. But the limitations of our understanding of what God has done shouldn't limit our actions to others. 
Just because I can't get my mind around it doesn't mean that I should then hold back from showing my heart to other people. You know, his example of love, God's example of love should motivate us to show grace to other people. And this is the kind of stuff that fuels that culture of shamelessness that Steve was talking about last week, that God has been so kind to me. I know what I'm capable of, and yet God has been so kind to me. Do you know the kindness of God? Has it impacted you? Has it got hold of you? His kindness, his forbearance, his love, his grace towards you. Does it motivate you? You know, that is a far better motivator of showing grace to others than guilt or obligation. I show love to others because I know how much God loves me. I show mercy to others because I know how merciful he's been to me. I show grace to others when they mess up, when they sin, when they fall, because I know that God has done it over and over and over for me. Amen? David had experienced God's kindness, and he was so overwhelmed by this that it compelled him to act You see, he just had to do something. He had to do something because of what he had experienced. And so going back to chapter 7, we see that part of David's response to God's promise of blessing was to say, when he said, what can I do for you, God? He says, what can I do for you? You've been so good to me. How can I show my appreciation? He says, God, I'll build you a temple. I'll build you the most beautiful temple that you have ever seen. God says to him, I don't want that. I don't want that from you, David. And so David then, in the next chapter, is asking this other question. Well, if I can't do something for God, what can I do for my enemy? (laughs) I've got to do something. I've been so impacted by God's grace. I've been so amazed by his love. I've got to show it somewhere. I've got to let it out somewhere. I've got to do something. It doesn't matter if it's my enemy. There must be somebody. What can I do? I just want you to understand before we go any further that that's what motivates David's heart. That's where that question comes from. Then going on to verse 2. And we meet Ziba, who's the servant of Saul. Verse 2, there was a servant of Saul named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, He is lame in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodibar. So here we have a son of the king. Actually, he was Saul's grandson, but he was the rightful heir to the throne. He was the son of the firstborn son of the king, 
and all other potential heirs were killed. They were dead. But he wasn't acting like a son. He wasn't acting like the son of a king. He was in hiding. And he wasn't even living like the son of a king. He didn't even have his own house. Instead, he was living with another chap called Machir, the son of Amiel. He had no money, presumably. He had no land or possession, so he didn't sound much like the son of a king. He didn't look like one, he didn't sound like one, he didn't act like one. And I wonder when the world looks at us, do they recognize the royalty in us? Do we act like kings? Do we sound like them? Do we walk like them? Children of the King of Kings. But he was a son, it says, it's almost like his surname, Mephibosheth, who was lame in both feet. It was completely how he was identified. He was the son of the king, but he was lame in both feet. And he was lame because when he was five years old, it says that his nurse dropped him. And he dropped him because he was running away from the threat of David that she thought was coming with his army to kill them. It's in 2 Samuel 4.4 if you want to look at it. And you know, we are all lame. There's a kind of general lameness which we're all born with, actually. We were all born lame because of our sinful nature. Because of Adam, we all have a propensity to sin, to please ourselves. We all have a tendency to fail. And even as newborn followers of Jesus, we carry this lameness around with us, although our attitude to sin has changed. We don't like sin anymore. We don't follow after it in the same way. We don't spend our whole lives trying to find ways to just gratify those urges. There's been a change. There's been a fundamental difference. But there is still this battle, this lameness. There's a kind of a general lameness but we want to please God. But there also may be particular areas of lameness that we struggle with. You know, there are emotional forms of lameness. There are spiritual lamenesses. There's psychological lameness. Whatever it is, there's something that stops us from walking in the way that we should. We're not walking right. There's something that's hindering us. There's something that's stopping us from being all that we can be in God. And perhaps this goes back to our earliest years. You know, an area of particular sin or weakness that we battle with, things that are part of our makeup or even our personality, but there's a kind of lameness there. And you know, there can be any number of things that can stop us from acting and living like the sons of the king that we are. But still, God is very kind. And he treats us like sons. Mephibosheth is called into the presence of the king in verse 5 and 6. It says there that, King David had him brought from Lodabar, 
from the house of Machiah, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Now, I don't know if you can even begin to imagine the scene, but Mephibosheth must have been absolutely terrified. He must have thought, this great warrior has found me. I'm a dead man. You know, up to this point, he was hidden away. He was safe, he thought. But then there was this knock on the door. And it brought him out, and he was vulnerable. He was exposed. I bet he was shaking like a leaf in a hurricane. I bet he was absolutely terrified. You know, this was why his nurse had run. It was this man that had made him lame, and now it was this man that was about to have him slaughtered on the spot. I wonder, is he going to do it himself? Or is somebody going to come up behind me and do it? They're going to use a sword. I, I know, they're going to completely humiliate me. They're going to make a show of me because I'm the son of Saul. It's the final uh, humiliation of Saul. Let's make a show of him. Oh, well, I'm getting what I deserve. You know, Saul, his lame grandson, he didn't even have the guts to raise a rebellion or try to claim the throne. That's what a king's son should have done and died doing it in those days. It was a disgrace. At your service, he says. It's like he was saying, you can do what you like with me, David. I'm a nobody. And he fell on his face, prostrated himself, a completely defeated man. Is that how you feel sometimes when you fail? Is that how you think when despite your status as a child of God, you act more like the proverbial sow returning to rolling in the mud or a dog to eat its own vomit? Hiding away, fearing exposure, guilty as charged, deserving of a public flogging, or perhaps even death would even be nice. Have you ever felt such despair over your sin or your condition? You know, when the king summons you, have you ever trembled in his presence or felt the dread of your own desperation? Do you, do you think he doesn't know about your lameness? So I'm just going to stay away from God right now because I've sinned at the moment. I'm just going to stay hidden. I don't want to come into his presence. I don't want to come to church at the moment. I don't want to see any other Christians, especially holy ones. And some might say that a, a follower of Jesus should never feel such things. I disagree. Not about our salvation. Ultimately, if we go through times where we're doubting that, then no, I'm not saying that. I think that that's not what I'm talking about. But in those particular areas of lameness, you know, sometimes there can be secret sin. Or perhaps prevailing sin. You know, that sin that you, you get into and you just can't break out of. Habits. Depravity. There's some of those things that we 
hide, even as those that walk in the light. But we know such dark places in our hearts. So it's not that we're hiding. I mean, it's even worse in a sense if we pretend that everything's okay and we're hypocrites, but we know that inside there's some dark stuff going on. To those people, I would say that coming to this place of desperation is often the beginning of true repentance. The kind that turns your life around, I mean. I mean, do you, do you know that? Do you know that need? Do you know that need of repentance? I've actually got a hit bottom here. And sometimes, you know, we need to fall on our faces and prostrate ourselves before the king to get free, to really mean it this time. God, you've got to do something or I fear for my soul. Have you ever put yourself in God's hands like that? Guys, this is the stuff. If you want revival, this is the stuff of revival. If you go to Wales at the moment, you'll see people on their faces crying out to God for mercy. And yet Mephibosheth was the son of a king. It's not the kind of thing that king's son should be doing. He should know better than that. And this is important because he was still the son of a king. He was still recognized and honored and treated that way. And it's important because sonship cannot be removed just because we've messed up. Praise God for that. Royal sonship is in the blood, not in our performance. I'm so glad about that. I want to tell you something. You know, I've known what it is to be lame. Not just generally, but specifically. To have been unable to break free, to have been powerless to change. To have stood in the fear of God as to my state and condition, even as a Christian raised in the Christian family, all the rest. One particular time, I experienced the most awful fear. And for several days, I lived in torment that my heart was becoming hardened to a particular area of sin. And that somehow, if I didn't find a deeper and more real repentance, that it would become so ingrained in me, I was fearful that next time I'd be unable to repent. I just wouldn't feel regret anymore. It talks, doesn't it, about our conscience being seared. So there is a point where even as Christians, I don't know, that's not a theological statement. But there's a point where we can just go too far. I don't know if that is possible for a Christian. It wasn't for me. I was so lame, but God set me free. You know, that in, in that moment of extremity, in that awful place, he rescued me and he changed me. And it came from exposure. 
It came from coming into the light. It came from confessing it to God and to others. The thing I feared most, if you've gone through that kind of stuff, the thing you fear most is exposure. It was through the thing I feared most that God set me free. And I found that people loved me. (laughs) And I found that they weren't disappointed, that they were heartbroken for me. And they stood with me and they helped me. (coughs) So the first thing that David does when he sees Mephibosheth lying prostrate on the floor, totally, totally given up, is he removes his fear. Isn't that wonderful? Verse 7, David says, Don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore you. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Wow! Wow! Don't we need some friends like that? Don't we need some leaders like that? I mean, what a wonderful guarantee. What a promise of restoration. What a privilege to sit at the king's table. Do not fear, he says. I mean, these words would have been completely meaningless unless David had then shown him some reason not to fear. Because, you know, some people say, don't be afraid, but really they're going to get you later. all sweetness and light, and then, do you know what he did? Behind his back. Don't be afraid. David immediately offers restoration. And he bases the restoration on the covenant he had with Mephibosheth's father, which is, if you like, the legal guarantee. But more than that, not just the covenant, it was Jonathan... Jonathan, who David loved. You know, I wonder if Mephibosheth realized, ah, it's because he loves my dad. He loves my father. That's why he's doing it. I can rest in this. There's something here. He said, Mephibosheth, this is not an obligation, but love. This is not just an obligation. So David immediately restores him. It's because of my brother, Jonathan. He says, I'm going to restore you and treat you as the son that you are. I want you to eat at my table with me. You see, Mephibosheth was landless and homeless and poverty-stricken. He had no means of support. He was the son of a king, but he had no inheritance to live from. And David gave him all of this, even though Mephibosheth had done nothing to deserve it. And actually, it was the love that David had for his father that won him this protection. 
And you know, that's the beauty of our King too. He treats us as sons even when we've failed and when we've not behaved or lived like sons. Because of Jesus and the Father's love for him, we are restored and privileged to sit in relationship at the king's table. There's a similar promise given to the followers of Jesus when Jesus told his disciples that they would eat and drink at his table in heaven. He says, one day we're going to all eat and drink together at my father's table in heaven. And Psalm 23, 5, the psalmist says, David's psalmist says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You know, the king is about a work of complete restoration in our lives. We are being made new. And in the meantime, we eat the king's food and we grow strong by it. What a privilege. Verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed down to David. And I don't know how he did. How did he bow down? He was already prostrate on the floor. Presumably somehow he bowed through the ground. But he bowed down. He says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? (laughs) But you see, we don't take God's grace for granted. We mustn't take his grace for granted. Just because he lets us off and forgives us time and time again. You know, his grace cannot lead us to arrogance if we really understand his grace and what we've been led off from. It leads us to humility. Dead dog. <laughs> Do you know what you've been offered? Do you know what you've been spared from? Who I am in Christ now should preoccupy our thinking and our prayers. You know, not in a kind of self-obsessed, how am I doing kind of way, but positively, in our desire to be more like Jesus, because this is all possible now. There is a way, there is a new way, there is a provision that's been made for us in Christ. We don't have to live as we did any, any longer. We may have areas of lameness, but we can be healed. You know, when we are saved... We we are disappointed because we find that it doesn't all happen at once. Anybody found that? (laughs) You know, it doesn't all get sorted at the same time. It doesn't all happen at once. I remember praying for somebody. I said, oh, can't God just deal with that? I said, if he does, you wouldn't know who you were. You'd probably go mad. (laughs) It's God's grace that he takes time to deal with these things in our life. Progressively, he works in us, and Christ works it out in us. And so this is, for example, changed my, this understanding of my identity has changed the way that I pray, especially about myself. You know, I pray more positively and more optimistically. I pray more deliberately about my position in Christ. So I pray things like, Lord, show me what it means to be in Christ. Give me a greater revelation of what it means to be a son of God. Show me my potential. Lord, teach me the ways of royalty, because I'm not used to it yet. Lord, show me what a royal person should do in that situation. Help me to be all that I can be. And you know, we may have 
areas of lameness and continue in them, but we live under the promise of his love and we are being restored and we are growing in intimacy with the king sitting at his table like sons of the king. That's our position now. So sometimes we're going to mess up. But he loves us. He restores us. And we still get to eat the king's food. So David makes good on his promise. In verse 9, it says that the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. That's a pretty substantial man. And David commissions him to look after Mephibosheth for the rest of his life. David set a new course for his life. He was no longer homeless or destitute. He lived in the king's favor and was cared for. If you are a Christian today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you live in the king's favor. He takes care of you. He's looking after you. He cares about your life. He cares about your circumstances. He's got rich rich men with hordes of children and servants looking after us. All the angels in heaven. Verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So Mephibosheth lived from that day on as the king's son, David's son, one of David's sons. He was brought and kept in this this wonderful family of the royal household. He was adopted, if you like, by David and received all the blessings of that household. Verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. Verse 13, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, but he was lame in both feet. He never needed to hide again. He lived in Jerusalem. He wasn't afraid of the king anymore. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? In full sight of the king, he never needed to go hungry. He always ate with the king. His royal identity was preserved for the rest of his life. He didn't deserve it. And his weaknesses never completely vanished. Anybody got any weaknesses? (laughs) so how has this story helped me to understand identity when it comes to areas of weakness and sin what about my limp well firstly we are Mephibosheth we're all born lame but Jesus has saved us and is about a work of restoration sons and daughters of the king who has extended kindness, inviting us into a place of incredible intimacy, privilege and position, seated at the king's table. And we have access to him, don't we? 
who have access to the king, we're adopted by him into his family, even though we don't act like it sometimes or live like it. And many of us still struggle with areas of lameness because of stuff that has happened, or we sin and we mess up. But we are still king's sons and daughters, and we can be forgiven and restored. But the thing is, is that the king's honour doesn't immediately take away all of our weaknesses and lameness, but it does give us favour and standing before God. And in this favour, there is blessing and ability to overcome, to receive healing and to change the way that we think about ourselves. God's at work in us and through us, healing us and setting us free. I just want to encourage you, don't fear exposure or live in bondage to the lie that I can't tell anybody about this, or I should have known better, or I should be doing better. Now, James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your sins to each other, and pray for each other, that you may be healed. Got a limp? <laughs> you got a limp? Pray for each other, that you may be healed, because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful, and effective. And you know, some of the greatest healings of lameness that take place happen when somebody confesses their sin and makes them accountable to somebody else. Remember what Mephibosheth means. It means shame breaker. So follow his example and break with the shame. And secondly, we are also David. You know, as recipients of God's kindness, we too must show the same kindness to others. Because of love, we must be patient with those that are poor or weak or lame because we too have been all those things and maybe it's just that we're doing a bit better these days. <laughs> Do you know, sometimes you can feel that, you know, I'm doing a bit better these days, but actually God then shows you something else he wants to deal with. So there you go. In our community together, we must learn to show love and kindness even when we don't feel it's deserved not like some kind of do-gooders and ignoring things and pretending they're not there, but in the knowledge of the grace that we have experienced, we can actually help people to overcome areas of weakness and lameness. And, you know, it's true to say that those that have been forgiven much love much. (laughs) But the opposite is also true. You know, that those that have known little forgiveness show little love. Let's be those that know we've been forgiven much and love much. As Christ's ambassadors, we must show God's kindness to others. Even if we do so with a bit of a limp. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I am not the perfect person (laughs) to lead anybody anywhere. And neither is Steve. And neither is anybody else. But I love Jesus, and I do believe that he wants to heal us, and he's taught me so much grace, and that's how I want us to be with one another too. I just want to finish by reminding you of Steve's amazing words last week, and if you haven't listened to Steve's talk, I just want to encourage you to, I mean, I felt it was a really significant message for us as a church. He said this, Quoting Psalm 25, verse 3, says, No one who hopes in the Lord will ever be put to shame. And he said that we have hope 
we have a king who removes our shame. There is no place for shame here, talking about our church. It doesn't belong, we don't want it, and it hinders the Spirit's work amongst us. Amen? We say we are partners in God's work to live free from shame in our own lives and to see others live free of shame in theirs. Amen. Let's just pray, shall we? I don't know, this may have been an uncomfortable talk for some people. You know, God is here and he's shining his light on us today. The amazing thing is, you know, God knows our lameness. He knows everything about us. But he still loves us. <coughs> and all I want to do as we close is just ask the Holy Spirit to come and search our hearts. And if you know that you need to put some things right with God, if you know that there's some areas of lameness that you need God to heal, I want to encourage you just to open your heart to the Holy Spirit and allow him to work in you because change takes place ultimately from the inside out. It's a work of God in us. It's not because we've made people feel guilty or made them feel bad or anything like that. That has short-lasting effect. What we need is for a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Only he can actually set us free and heal us. So why don't we all just put our hands out? And just as a sign of openness to God, and pray like David prayed on one occasion, he said, search me, O God, and know my heart today. And so Holy Spirit, we just invite you to just go through our lives and search us. Lord, we pray that you would heal us. We pray, Lord Jesus, for breakthrough in our lives. We pray, Lord, for those areas that we're ashamed of, Lord, and we know they shouldn't be there, but Holy Spirit, we, we know that you are the expert surgeon. Would you come and work on our hearts? And Lord, would you do all that is needed to make us more like Jesus? and to make us into all that we can be because of what you have done. Lord Jesus, we come and prostrate ourselves before you, our King, and say, Lord, will you have your way in our lives? Will you have your way in this church? And Lord, would you enable us to know the greatness of your forgiveness so that we can show others the greatness of your love? Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your patience. Thank you for the work of your Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you've promised that you will complete all these works that you begin.